This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. I am currently running a giveaway related to the podcast, a $125 gift card to either bookshop.org or Blue Willow Bookshop. You can enter by rating or reviewing the podcast on the Apple Podcast platform. And if you are not on that platform or you have already reviewed it there, you can do Podchaser instead. After you've done the review, screenshot it and email me at cburnett5555 at comcast.net. There is more info on my website. The giveaway ends July 19th. Today, I am interviewing Adam Stern about Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Adam is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He lives with his family near Boston. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Adam. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Well, why don't we start out with you just telling me a little bit about Committed. I've read it, but some of the people listening may not have yet. Sure thing. Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training is my new memoir. It uh, really tells the story of my going from a wide-eyed, naive medical student or recent graduate all the way through becoming a psychiatrist. And the path that that took involved overcoming imposter syndrome, learning the value of human connection, uh, meeting the love of my life, all those things. You had a lot happening in those four years. Those four years were incredibly formative. And I think that it's similar to a lot of groups um, that might have sort of uh, intense experiences together. You end up forming a sort of lifelong bond. And I feel like I have that with the people that I trained with and a lot of the teachers that, that brought us along. I would certainly think so, because you are going through a lot of powerful, strong, definitely kind of bring the group together type events. Right. And there's also this element within any kind of medical training setting where you are carrying, you're caring for, I should say, patients. Caring is sort of like a medical phrase that sort of the, the lingo that gets used uh, in the hospital sometimes. But really what you're doing is caring for patients that are depending on you, but not just you, they're, they're depending on the whole group. So if you go home at 6 p.m., you're signing out to one of your colleagues who's supposed to take care of that hospitalized patient from 6 p.m. to, let's say, 8 a.m. the next morning, and then they hand it off to the next person. And so there ends up being this dependence on each other, uh, not only at a personal level, but also at a professional level. If one person doesn't do their job, then uh, it's the patient that might suffer. And, and, and so everyone is working as hard as they can to make sure that they're doing a good job, that they're proud of the job that they're doing, and that they can walk in the next day with their head held high. Well, and it's truly a shared experience because you are sharing the patients. I mean, like you just described, so maybe you work the shift during the day, 
you pass it off to somebody else, you're going to have to have great communication between all of your colleagues as to what happened when they weren't there and you were there and vice versa. So you can kind of continue to trade stories and understand more about the patients. Exactly. And then one of the added sort of layers of complexity that I love uh, in telling this story in the book is that, you know, we were at the time that this took place, most of us in the class together, so there were 15 of us in total, most of us were in our mid-20s. You know, if you do the math on when you go to college and then when you go to, if you, like I did, I went straight through to medical school right after that. I was 26 years old when I started residency. And you get thrown in together, this group of 15 people are, are in their mid-20s, thrown in with a tremendous amount of responsibility that they share, but they're still 20-somethings. Uh, you know? So in other words, um, a lot of our, uh, the people that we went to college with, for example, were living in other cities, sort of going out, having fun, meeting people. And the 15 of us were sort of in the, in the medical center together for you know, hours on end, days on end weeks on end, four years, you know, in the end. And that sort of congeals a group together. It, it bonds a group, you know. And, and that's one of the things that I think is so strange and interesting about this story that I don't think that most people have a sense of just how young and naive their junior doctors are when, when they're being treated <laughs> by them. They probably don't really want to have that sense, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. You do make that point well in the book, and you talk about how a lot of times it's these residents' first true job. I mean, I'm sure they've worked before in summers, during college, whatever it is, but it's a lot of times your first true job out of school, and that it is kind of feet to the fire. Absolutely. It's so much so that, you know, there's a chapter in the book, which was, you know, based like everything from real life, where the residency had this informal tradition. Like once we got our first paycheck, we all went to this, this, everyone except for the, the couple of people who had to stay behind at the medical center, everyone met up at this uh, Mexican restaurant and celebrated their first paycheck. You know, it's, it was, I, I like to say with all love and, and admiration that medical trainees, like, like I was, were, were really sort of developmentally stunted because we've been in school our entire lives. And, you know, by the time we're fully functioning adults, it's funny, we've been burdened with this enormous responsibility, but at a social developmental level, we're sort of behind. You know, I've always thought about what a burden it would be for my friends that are doctors or when I go to the doctor and I'm, you know, interacting with them. Like there's so much, whatever your practice is, that you're dealing with and have so much of a responsibility for. But I really thought about that in the last 15 to 16 months. I mean, it would be a really hard time to have been a doctor. It's been an incredibly hard time, not for me personally, but for doctors across the country and uh, probably across the globe. The pandemic has just, you know, as it has been for everyone, it's disrupted things. But for doctors in particular, there was an, especially doctors who have to work on site, who have to be exposed to viruses, you know, to pathogens. Uh, part of being a doctor is being okay with putting your own health to some extent on the line. The pandemic has featured this interesting dichotomy where apparently there has been a huge upsurge in medical school applications. I think that that to some extent has to do with, uh, you know, this sort of idea that people are referring to doctors and healthcare workers as heroes that, you know, a lot of people find Dr. Fauci and, and others to be these heroic figures. And at the same time, people in medicine, there's been this great exodus. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's happening within the next couple of years. 
lots and lots of doctors are planning their exits. And I can tell you that anecdotally, it's just people are burnt out and they've experienced this sense of moral injury. A lot of doctors who have been working through the pandemic actually feel like, okay, they, they you know, rose to the occasion, they, they worked in the hospital during the worst days of the pandemic, and then sometimes seeing sort of society behave in a way that was, I don't know, for lack of a better word, maybe not un- unappreciative is the wrong word, but, but not dedicated toward the eradication of this virus, uh, you know, was, was sort of like a moral injury for a lot of doctors that might have been a last straw. I also think the emotional toll must have been just unimaginable. And I was really thinking about it again while I was reading your book, and that's one of my questions for you in a minute, is what the emotional toll was like for you during your residency. Because I know for me, if I were dealing with a lot of those poor people who were really struggling, I would be taking home their struggles. And it would be really hard for me to kind of put that aside and and live my own life. And it made me think again about all these doctors and nurses and EMTs, everybody that's been out there dealing with the pandemic and how you can just go home and not bring all that with you, which I think ties in a tiny bit to what you were just talking about, because I have seen a couple of my friends who are doctors who do get pretty frustrated with people being out and about. And I think they understand more than anything where the harm is. And it's hard for them to understand for the rest of us who've you know, just been sitting at home, but reading the news and seeing what's happening, but not really living it for the most part, unless you've had an individual you knew pass away, it's hard sometimes to fully understand and appreciate the severity of it. But I can see where all those doctors were dealing with it day in, day out. They're like, just stay home, people. Absolutely. No, I I totally understand and sort of appreciate uh, where, what you're getting at, that people who haven't had to intubate patients for this disease and watch them die and hold up phones while their um, loved ones say goodbye, that kind of thing, which I haven't, frankly, I have not had to do, but a lot of doctors have. You know, it's impossible to expect the average person to have that same degree of sort of trauma from the experience. Uh, So I totally get that. And, you know, getting back to your, your question about the emotional trauma of training in medicine or psychiatry, in my case, you know, part of uh, medical training is about holding the patient's issues with them. In psychiatry, it's the issues or emotional health. In medicine, it's it's their illness. And so being, by holding, I mean being in the room with them and sharing the burden of it and trying to help them uh, go forward. And in psychiatry residency, I learned that there's actually a phenomenon uh, that dates back to the era of uh, Sigmund Freud, a defense mechanism that often is employed called projective identification. And that, in brief, is when you start to unconsciously feel the emotions that someone else is projecting out into the world. And if you're a psychiatrist and you're working with half a dozen, a dozen, two dozen patients in a day, and you're hearing and holding with them in that environment all of their emotional burdens, a lot of that is is going to end up landing on you or with you, and you do carry it home. And so one of the points I I tried to make in the book is that it's a healthy thing for uh, doctors of all stripes, but especially psychiatrists, to seek help, to be in therapy. It's not a sign of weakness. In fact, in psychiatry, it's encouraged because the best way that you're going to be able to help others is to have insight into your own distresses, to have a sense of what what is uh, maybe bothering you under the surface that you don't have easy access to. And so I hope that did come across in the book a bit. It did. And I've always heard that. 
and understood that it would be necessary, but I guess it really came to life for me and I fully kind of felt immersed in what you were going through when you were dealing with those patients and understanding how then it could really weigh on you. I mean, I know it would weigh on me and just being able to, I guess, vent maybe isn't the right word, but talk with someone else about it and get some of that out would maybe then share the burden a little bit. Yeah. And, and, you know, in terms of sharing the burden, there's also that element of it's not quite being in the military and serving together, which again, I don't have any personal experience with, but you are with your colleagues, with your classmates, your trainees that are training with you, you're all in it together, right? And so we would go from having a night float um, week or two where you're working only at night, you know, and then uh, immediately after that, basically get together with the same group of people you've been working with just to unwind, you know, and and just to let loose. You know, there's a scene, there's a chapter in the book about uh, a trip that several of us took to Mexico, of all places, just to get away altogether, you know, and, and, and we were going together because not only were we our own, you know, sort of our only friends really were each other at that time in our lives, but also because, you know, it, it was like, celebrating that we had gotten through the first year of this enormous, overwhelming task together. And I'm just not sure people that haven't experienced it themselves would fully understand. So you can probably unwind a little easier with people that have just gone through the same thing you've gone through because you totally understand what it was like. Yeah, I think that that is a double-edged sword. You're absolutely right. Um, there's a, there's a, 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 a sort of secret language that doctors share that a secret understanding that Dr. Share, it's one of the reasons that so many doctors end up marrying other doctors is that you have an understanding when the pager goes off in the middle of the night, what that's all about, that there's not like a choice in the matter. There's a sort of shared understanding about the responsibilities that come with being a doctor. And then at the same time, sometimes I'll see a friend who's a, a doctor and a spouse that's not in medicine and like they don't have to talk about medicine or <laughs> right, psychiatry right. at all. They can get through a whole conversation without bringing up any stories about work. And, you know, it's an amazing thing to see. So there are definitely pros and cons to both kinds of uh, combos. That makes me think of when our kids were little and my husband and I would finally get out by ourselves on a date and then all we'd talk about were the kids, you know, and right. I was like, no, wait, we need to be talking about something other than what we do all the time anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, what about the legal issues about writing about the people that you treated, and then also writing about the other people in your program. So how did all of that get addressed for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, I spent a lot of time and energy looking into that, thinking about that. I ended up even consulting uh, two different lawyers, one sort of independent on my own before getting started, and then one through the publishing house to just confirm, you know, sort of like the, the legality and, and what steps we had to take to make sure that we protect the privacy of all the patients. And so, uh, you know, there's a liberal use of several things that are, are listed right at the front of the book. This was one of the conditions that I had to write the book was right up front in the author's note before anything else. There's a very clear description of what uh, techniques I use to disguise identities, to completely anonymize patients and people who wanted to be anonymized, even, even to the extent of changing details, which pushes the book from like straight memoir to slightly less straight memoir, because I'm acknowledging right up front, like certain things I've had to change, you know, and that includes names. Uh, that's the easiest example is a lot of names are, are, are changed. Of course. That also includes, you know, locations, 
Uh, I'll give you an example. We rotated through multiple inpatient psychiatry units during our training. And so I created a like composite location where all of the inpatient events took place. But that location, the name of it is jumbled up, including features of different locations. So it's it's become largely unidentifiable that that's any particular unit that I'm talking about, any inpatient psychiatry unit. But I'm doing that without sort of pushing the boundary of sort of nonfiction, essentially. I'm still telling uh true stories, but in a totally sort of anonymized, unidentifiable way. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that I, I felt compelled. First, uh, the very first person I needed to sort of clear this with was my wife. And uh, we had a long discussion about it. And then we, uh, I, I approached every single one of my classmates. And, and for the most part, anyone that I was able to reach out to, so anyone where it was possible to reach out to them, I did. And and everyone there was there wasn't a single person well clearly there wasn't a person in the book that said that they didn't want to be in the book so that was that was obviously a threshold that I stuck to very closely. Did you change their names? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't change your wife's name, but did you change other names? I actually did change my wife's name. Oh, uh, okay. And the reason is that she you know she's a practicing psychiatrist. Oh right, right. Neither of us wanted her to be in a position. Where a brand new patient who walks into her office, you know, yeah. says, knows more about her and her romantic life and her history with me and anything, you know, than she knows about the patient. It has to be her patients have to be protected and she has to be protected. So, yeah, her name is 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 changed. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm glad that I mentioned that then because I hadn't thought about it that way. But yes, I could see. And and, and you mentioned at the end that she's a very private person, which I am too. So it made me really think like if somebody was writing this about me, I don't know. But that's nice that she was comfortable with you writing it and you were able to still tell your story. Yeah, it's it's frankly, it's kind of an incredible thing. I, I almost can't believe that it's worked out the way it has because, like you say, she's such a private person. Half the book involves Rachel, uh, you know, having this uh, sort of internal dilemma about, you know, keeping our relationship a secret or when are we going to tell our friends and when, uh, you know, are we, it's the will they or won't they kind of scenario for a long time. And it, it, it's an incredible thing that she gave me the, frankly, the, like the freedom to tell this story. She knew how important I felt like it was for me to be able to put my story out there, our story. And I appreciate it. You know, I don't think I'll, I, I, one of my biggest regrets is I don't think I could ever quite capture the specifics about what I, what connects us, how, why, how I find her to be the love of my life exactly but that's i think probably a common issue for authors trying to write about their spouses i would certainly think so and maybe something that in the end it's not so bad to just keep it to yourself you know to have something that you know you treasure it so much right good point well why did you want to write this story i wanted to write this story you know everybody always says you, you should write about what you know and if you're writing a book it should really be something that only it's a story that only you can tell. Otherwise, you know, it could just be the next person down the road. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to write, I realized that the thing that I could do best that no one else could do, I think, in quite the same way is describe the journey that I in particular took um, from the State University Medical School in Syracuse, which, by the way, was a, a terrific place to study. But a very different environment than than Harvard Medical School, uh, where I ended up doing uh, matching, you know, as part of this residency match. 
you don't sort of apply like a regular job. You 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 get you interview and then you get sort of assigned to what program you're going to go to. And so I met. I went from a state school to Harvard. Harvard, and then in that process, it really. I, I think that I'm in a unique position to be able to des- describe how you take someone who is overwhelmed in their mid twenties, just graduated from medical school, doesn't know the first thing about psychiatry, and suddenly they're supposed to be in charge of the locked <laughs> psychiatry unit, and how that how you get from there to what most people think about psychiatrists, like this sort of cerebral figure, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are all kinds of stereotypes, but everybody has, has these ideas about like what a psychiatrist is. And I don't think very many people know how they get that way. You know, like how, how, how do you uh, become the person that's supposed to help with emotional problems and burdens? Uh, It's a very, I, I think psychiatry is the most interesting field. That's why I went into it is that there's no other field in medicine where the character and the person's story is so important, so integral to their treatment, right? You can have a bad back and go to an orthopedic surgeon and that surgeon can do a wonderful job and they might never even really get to know you at all. Um, And that's fine. You know, that's part of what certain aspects of different fields are. But in psychiatry, you can prescribe a medicine and not get to know someone and they might get better, but you'll do a lot better if you first actually connect with a patient, learn about them, and then align with them and figure out how to get them better together. And that's what drew me to psychiatry. And so I thought I could do that. I think I, I thought I could tell that story and also make it interesting for the average reader because there's so much like interpersonal drama. It's also where I met my wife, as we've talked about. And so I thought I could make it interesting. And hopefully I did. We'll see. You definitely did. And it was fascinating to me to to understand the training that you had to go through to be a psychiatrist, because I definitely wasn't familiar with that. And then also one of those things that I do understand, but you really kind of made me think a lot more about it, is that I think the other difference in like an orthopedic doctor dealing with a back injury. So, you know, you tell the patient either have this surgery or do these exercises or take this medicine. And that person's probably going to want to keep taking their medicine because it'll make their back better. And there's no issue related to how the medicine generally makes them feel or impacts their mental state. And then also, you know, they don't do their exercises while their back hurts a little bit. But I think it's totally different on the psychiatric side of it because those medicines really impact the way people feel. So a lot of times, and I think you talk some about this in your book, they don't want to keep taking their medicine. And so then the problem can't get better because the medicine can't, you know, can't work or the medicine isn't really a perfect solution. And so it just seems that it's much more imperfect science, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's a tremendous limitation that psychiatry has. It's still catching up from decades of sort of uh, non-scientific approaches toward um, the mind, right? right? So the mind is an aspect of the brain. We know that's where it comes from. Our understanding of the brain is so limited, uh, and and we've really only been working to really truly, or had the tools to even basically understand the brain and how it malfunctions for the last few decades with the advent of like functional MRI and other techniques. So psychiatry is playing catch up. Uh, one of the other things that you brought up that that I think is really important to note is that psychiatry is a field where it's one of the only fields where you're going to treat people against their will sometimes. And the reason for that is that society says, 
it's better to treat this person against their will, to take away their freedom, their autonomy to make that decision, because if we don't, they're at risk of harming themselves or someone else, right? So society sort of has made that declaration for, for a long time. And where there's a disconnect is, is I think that people end up thinking like psychiatrists like to do that. I hate to do that, you know, and I, I think that comes across in the book. I really, I still, I mean, I've been now uh, in this field for like 11 years. I still cannot stand the idea of treating someone against their will, but I do it when I have to. And to your point, the reason that patients sometimes stop medications, even when it's against their interest, uh, you know, even, even if it's going to precipitate, you know, a psychotic break or a manic episode, something like that, is because we're failing them, because the medicines make them feel lousy or because, you know, they don't help enough. Uh, and so we have to do better. The field, you know, I, like I say, we're doing, we're catching up. We have to catch up uh, because we got a late start. Um, and the more we learn about the brain, the better off we'll be. But um, we have to do better. The mind is so much more fragile and there's so much less known about it. And so while you're doing the very best you can to treat it, it's a totally different idea to treat the mind than it is to treat the leg or the arm or the heart because there's emotion and feeling and thought and all of these other things that go into that kind of treatment. So I'm sure that all of these psychiatrists are doing a wonderful job. It's just that it's a totally different animal. Oh, for sure. On that, we can definitely agree. The mind is so complex. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. When you're trying to sort of quantify in some way things like mood, you know, functioning, anxiety, these are not things that show up on, with a biomarker. You know, uh, sometimes I like to actually use the reverse analogy and think about hypertension, high blood pressure, and how those patients with high blood pressure, they don't go to their doctor and say, give me a pill and take away the high blood pressure and let me get back to my life they're sort of, for most people, it's, they go to the doctor, the doctor says, okay, can you try eating differently? Can you try exercising? We'll try this medication. And most, the vast majority of patients are going to have some version of uh, high blood pressure for the rest of their life. And everyone's sort of okay with that. In psychiatry, sometimes things can get a little dicey because someone sort of wants to be fixed, right? Or they want their family member to be fixed. And when you're dealing with issues of personality, with issues of mood and anxiety and perception, you know, which is really like what uh, psychosis is all about is hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there or uh, misinterpreting cues from the environment. These are such squishy, to use a super technical term, they're such squishy phenomena that it's very, we're still at, at our infancy, you know, in terms of understanding them. That's what I meant was that it's just not such a cut and dry thing because I actually have high blood pressure. I have since I had my first daughter I was diagnosed with preeclampsia with her and then it just never went away. So I take my medicine every day, but it doesn't impact the way I feel. My blood pressure is better and I go on. And that is just so cut and dry compared to the things you were just describing. And you talk a little bit about it with your patient, I think named Deborah, who understands it's a problem to be manic, but she says when it starts, it feels so good initially that then it kind of sets her on this path so that sometimes then she does stop taking her medicine for that reason. So all of that is just so much more ambiguous. And I guess that's what I was trying to say, that it would be much harder to treat those type of things. And then you also, even if you talk and talk and talk to someone, you're not going to totally probably know everything that's ever happened to them and that's maybe factoring into whatever they're feeling at the moment. Yeah, that's a really interesting point too. You know, sometimes we, and I think I, I, think I allude to this in the book, that there's an environment like the emergency department where a psychiatrist 
at our medical center where I work currently, you know, is stationed at any given moment. There's, there's at li- even at four in the morning, there's a, psychi- a psychiatry resident down there. And sometimes at four in the morning, a patient will want to tell you uh, the details of their recent breakup, you know, or a childhood issue that they had or whatever it might be. And that, that resident has four other consults waiting and an admission upstairs. And, you know, sometimes the resident has to sort of actually draw a, a, an unnatural line and say, all right, I just need to decide if this patient needs to be admitted, discharged, in what way we're going to try to, you know, help them get on the right path. And I have to stop this person from telling me their, their entire life story, right, even right. though tell, like listening to the patient's life story would probably be the best thing for the patient, right? Because it, it gives you a better understanding of who you're, who you're working with and it helps you align with the patient. So it's a, there is a sort of paradox there sometimes. Would just make it so much trickier, much more interesting, but also so much more tricky. For sure. And, you know, in modern, modern psychiatric practice, there's a lot of psychopharm, which means like med management treatment, because there are a lot of different people with different credentials who can do various versions of therapy, uh, including psychiatrists, but not limited to them. But psychiatrists are one of the only uh, medical practitioners that can prescribe uh, for psychiatric conditions. And so you end up with a lot of psychiatrists now in, in you know, the year 2021 uh, with very brief visits, you know, they'll see a patient for 10, 15 minutes uh, over a three month span, one visit, you know, and that is a shame because it, it makes it very difficult to get to know someone very well, which can be, like I've been saying, sort of one of the most important parts. As a practicing doctor and as a faculty member, how in the world did you also find time to write a book? That is an interesting question. In one particular way, this, so my my sort of like road to writing this book has been long. Um, I think it's been a couple of years at this point since the idea first sort of hit me. And then we, you know, there's a whole process in, involving writing up the proposal, which is a whole endeavor all unto itself, and then submitting that and getting a publishing house interested and then writing the actual book, right? And so writing the book actually occurred for about eight months during the pandemic, which was both the best and the worst possible time. Um, it was the best time because I was home actually doing a lot of virtual work uh, on Zoom. You know, we were seeing patients virtually at that time. And it allowed me to carve out little periods of time where I would go into this little makeshift office and force myself to write every day. And it didn't matter if it was good, good or bad, uh, or if it was 500 words or, you know, three chapters, I had to do something each day. And by committing to do that, I found that I kept up a momentum and it let me sort of structure the progress of the book appropriately. So writing the book during the pandemic, I mean, there were pros and, and there were cons. The cons are obvious that, you know, our childcare fell through, uh, everything was was chaos. And of course, there was a pandemic outside. So those things were challenging. But uh, from the writing standpoint, it actually helped me structure things a little bit while at home. Well, yes, made it a little easier to fit it in between seeing people online versus being in a hospital or an office or wherever you're normally practicing and then trying to run over and write for 15 minutes. Right. To me, one of the benefits of the pandemic with respect to doctor's visits has been that now every office is able to do remote visits. And I realize probably for you, those are not as helpful because you're sitting at a screen. But for a lot of the other types of visits, it's just fabulous. 15 or 30 minute phone call or Zoom call versus getting to the doctor and all of that. It's been so nice that all of these offices have adapted. 
I couldn't agree with you more. And frankly, I think one of the things the pandemic did was it revealed all of these antiquated systems that we had in place that didn't actually need to be in place. You know, I mean, the virtual visits is one obvious area. We could have done that years ago, right? The technology has been around and it's just sort of this logistical bureaucracy across all of healthcare and most, most work settings that made it challenging. Now that we've gotten a taste of it, uh, a lot of these things are probably here to stay, which is, which is a good thing. I certainly hope so, because it definitely makes our lives easier when it's the visits that don't have to be in person. I mean, I totally get some do, but for the ones that don't, it's just fantastic. And I am glad that the medical field got pulled into the present, just like all of these other fields did too. Exactly. Even the idea, I mean, some, some things in medicine are so backward. They've been around in, for decades without progress, like faxing medical records and getting releases. Yes. And these things need to, to join us in this century sometimes. And the pandemic helped a little bit, and there's still some room to go. Well, that faxing, you mentioned that. I um, help with both of my parents in their medical care and getting them to the doctor and just exactly what you're describing, needing to get releases and all that. It's amazing to me that some of these offices will only do it via fax. I'm always like, oh, nobody has a fax anymore. Right. <laughs> because I'm having to go to like a copy doctor or, you know, Kinko's or something and fax something because that's the only way to get it there. It's yeah. just insane. Even pagers, you know, doctors still carry pagers for the most part. It's oh, unbelievable. Wow. But like it's standard issue, you know, when you sign on, it's like, here's your pager. And it's just what decade is it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Between the facts and the pager, right. I agree with that. Well, and I'll give one other little medical thing that just absolutely drives me crazy. It's all these portals. I feel like if I could invent one portal that would still meet HIPAA's requirements where this doctor's office could be, they could all be together in one place but couldn't see each other, but everything was shared versus having, you know, 15 different portals based on the doctor's group you're seeing, I feel like I would make so much money. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> Portals are are progress, but they are also cumbersome at the same time. It would yes. be so wonderful to have a single unified portal. And actually, this is one example. Um, like the medical center where I work actually paired up with all the other local medical centers during the pandemic to there's now like a little button I can click into if I'm already in the patient's record, I can click into the neighboring hospital's record. And that never existed before. And that's ridiculous. If they had the capability that we should have had that uh, right on our portal, you know? So, so there's, there's, it's like slow, but steady. And then occasionally there's a big leap forward. So hopefully we can keep leaping forward in the coming years. I'm sure we will. Well, Adam, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you really liked. Yeah. So I, I, one of my uh, favorite books from this year was The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Have you heard of this? I've actually read it and I reviewed it for Book Reporter. I loved oh, that book. It was so fascinating. What did you like about it? First of all, I was so impressed with her. I just mm-hmm. thought she was fabulous. But I, I loved the tie into COVID. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I thought all of what she had done was fabulous. And, and the way he took each person's story and kind of explained that they were building on each other, that you mm-hmm. couldn't get to where she got without these, you know, whole host of people ahead of her, but also then how timely her invention, I guess that's what you call it, her invention was or creation. And then, you know, how wonderfully it worked with COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. I've set up, uh, we haven't done it yet, but I've set up a, like a book uh, discussion at the office where I work because I think that it has so many lessons 
that we could learn from. And just for any listeners that haven't read it, this is the the Codebreakers. Uh, it focuses primarily on a scientist named Jennifer Doudna, who was really credited with uh, uh, another scientist named Charpentier with the discovery of something called CRISPR, which is a technology that allows you to potentially edit DNA, uh, which is something that that happens naturally in nature, but that we as human beings have never had the access to. So she and her, her, her research partners discovered this. And then what I found so interesting from like a, an academic standpoint is what happened after that, where there was ongoing competition with other researchers at other institutions to see who would be able to apply this technique to human cells as opposed to just in the in bacteria for example and then there was you know there was a patent battle and there were awards and you know the nobel prize goes to one but the patent goes to the other and it gets at this issue of how does society value scientific discovery basic science versus application to humans you know and the truth is we should value them both you know that they should both uh, that that one can't really exist without the other and i just thought that uh, walter isaacson did a, a wonderful job sort of painting a portrait of team science and the challenges within. I agree. And then the cool part of it is I have three kids. They're 20, 18, and 15. And so my 18 and 15-year-old are home, and they're in high school. And so I loved that book, and I was just so excited about it, and I was telling them about it at dinner one night. Both of my kids had talked about CRISPR in biology. Oh, that's amazing. And I just was like, they were like, oh, we know what you're talking about. I was like, no, you don't, because my son's always pulling my leg. And he's like, no, no. And he like told me exactly what it did. And I thought that is the coolest thing, that it is relatively new and that they were already learning about it in biology. That's amazing. Like in the last 20 years, it was really valuable to get good at coding, like for computers, you know, writing code and being savvy with, with electronic computing, you know. And he says the next era is essentially with that, but with biology like people who will know how to edit the genome. And that skill set, that enormous sort of umbrella skill set will be incredibly important for like today's youth, you know, people like your kids as they grow up and my kids who are even, you know, even younger, you know, what kind of world they're going to grow up into and what kind of technologies this will open up. I thought that part was so cool, that part of the story, and I highlighted it in my review, actually. And then also the the moral and ethical obligations that will come with some of that. Exactly. So interesting. You know, where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, that we would all agree, of course, eradicating some disease that we could do very easily uh, should happen. But then what about, you know, uh, if someone um, has congenital deafness, you know, that kind of question where it's more controversial and there are different differing opinions. And then all the way to the sort of more obvious other end of the spectrum in terms of uh, well, should we allow people to make them their children taller? Probably not, but why not? And let's think about that. And I just thought the whole thing was so fascinating. I did too, and picked their gender and their eye color. Right. And yeah, I just truly thought that was one of the most fascinating books, and I, I loved it. So I'm glad that you did too. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? The book I'm currently listening to on my commutes into and, and home from work is the memoir by Matthew McConaughey called Greenlight. And it is so fascinating because he's like a modern day philosopher, but also a little bit of a frat boy, but he's 50 years old and it's just so fascinating. And he ends every chapter, it seems like he ends every sort of story by, and I'm listening to it on audiobook. So it's him saying this to me as I'm driving the car and it's like a lesson that he learned. And then he goes, green light, 
And I just think it's so fascinating. I love it. It, it, it. When he says that, I just get a little pep in my step. Well, I have heard nothing but fabulous things about that book. And I've heard him talk about it, but I haven't read it yet. And actually listening to it's a great idea. So I'm going to get the audio. But I'm in Texas. And, you know, he's declared that he's going to run for governor. So oh. I'll be very curious to see if he does, which party he's in. But I, mean, I guess he's declared that he is interested in running for governor. But there was all this brouhaha about it a few weeks ago. So I'm like, hmm. He's an in- incredibly interesting guy. And yeah, give it, give that book a shot. I definitely will. It's interesting. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, Adam. And I'm so glad you joined me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.